0: Find Genesis chapter 2. And what I want to talk to you tonight about is the blessedness of rest. The blessedness of rest. Genesis chapter 2. And we're actually not going to venture very far into this chapter tonight. In fact, we're only going to go through verse 3. Okay? So we'll try to keep three verses at 50 minutes or under. Okay? Uh, Chapter 2. Let's read it together. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished His work that He had done, and He rested on the seventh day from all His work that He had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Now folks, we have said already that Genesis 1 to 11 is primeval history. Again, I mentioned last week, some have said what in the world is primeval history? Primeval history simply refers to the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis and then beginning in Genesis chapter 12 and going down through Genesis 50 we have patriarchal history that's that's as broad an outline of the book of Genesis as I know to give you primeval history and patriarchal uh, history now last week we were looking again at the days of creation we saw how God formed the earth and the universe And then how he filled the earth and the universe. So first the forming and then secondly the filling. We also saw how God created man in his image and what that means to be created in the image of God. I gave you all a number of things uh, last Wednesday night that I repeated again this past Sunday morning. Well, we saw also how everything is not created from a single organism. The way the evolutionist says that everything goes back to that single organism. We saw that that's not the case. Genesis 1 tells us that God created the plants and the animals and made it so that everything would reproduce after its kind. Over and over again in chapter 1 we saw that phrase, after its kind. And then we saw how Adam and Eve were given dominion. And in their dominion they were to reflect God's image. They were to be image bearers. They were to be God's vice regents, God's representatives taking control of everything and exercising rulership under God's leadership and under God's direction. We also saw that when everything was created, it was pronounced as being good and finally very good. Different from what we see today because Obviously, we live on this side of Genesis chapter 3, which is the fall. But of course, we're still in that time period before the fall. And so it was good and finally very good. Now, it's generally agreed that the opening verse of chapter 2 goes along with the close, most naturally goes along with the close of chapter 1. Stephanus. The 16th century printer and scholar introduced the chapter and verse divisions that we have in our Bibles today. Now, for some reason, he did the division the way he did between chapters 1 and 2. And I certainly hope you know that the chapter divisions and the verses are not a part of the inspired text of Scripture. But whether or not we always agree with what stephanus did or not, i'm glad he did it, aren't you? Could you imagine trying to follow a pastor or follow a Sunday school teacher if we didn't have chapters, chapter divisions, and verse divisions? It'd be pretty hard, wouldn't it? It'd be very hard. Uh, so good, bad, or indifferent, uh, I'm glad he did the uh, the chapter and verse divisions well with a great sense of completion verse 1 says that the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them what do you find amazing about the creation story so far a number of things we could talk about and I'll, I'll tell you what I find amazing but what do you find amazing there's order? Absolutely. God is a God of order, not a God of chaos. The fact that it was created ex nihilo, out of nothing. Even though the word bara doesn't always mean that, certainly here it does refer to that. Somebody else over here said something. He just spoke it and it was done. Yes. He just proclaims it. Yes. That's right. <laughs> does, does anything about the length strike you? Anything about the length? Six days? But it's, it's basically just a page, right? A page. What if, what if you and I were writing this? We would need libraries, we would need books, we would need volumes and volumes because we'd be wanting to put everything under a microscope. But folks, it shows us something that, that, that the Bible is not going to belabor the point of creation. It's simply enough to know that God did it. The Bible is a book of redemption, it's not a science manual. Now, when it speaks scientifically or historically, it's accurate. But it's not a science manual. It's not a history manual. Uh, again, where it comments on those issues, it can be trusted. But the purpose of the Bible is to deal with God's, is to record God's dealings with mankind. We don't see God putting every single little thing under a microscope here and giving us volumes and volumes of material. Now also you need to know that critical scholars of the past tried to say that what we have in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 is two entirely separate creation accounts. I do not accept that. I do not accept that. It is a unified account. Genesis 1 gave the overall picture. And then Genesis 2 is going to zoom in more closely on the man and the woman in order to tell us more about them and how God made them in His image. You know, after reading chapter 1... Uh, verses 26 and 28, it would almost be odd if God didn't give us a more of a zoomed-in account. That's what we have in Genesis chapter 2. It's not a separate account. It's just a different focus. And so in chapter 2, we're going to learn more about Adam and Eve and we're going to learn more about the union, the marriage union that God created them to have? Well first of all if you're taking notes tonight I want you to see that the seventh day is uh, the seventh day marked the completion of God's special creative work the seventh day marked the completion of God's special creative work verse 2 tells us that on this seventh day God Finished his work of creation and he rested. And the way it's described, the seventh day is unlike the previous six days. Now, we have the statement, first of all, that creation was finished. God finishes and completes what he starts. There's nothing that remains to be done. And God does all things well. Amen? The Bible says that God finished His work. Now, back in Genesis chapter 1 verse 28, we see that man is to work. The fact that God worked and that man is given work to do says something to us about the nature of work. Folks, work is not a result of the fall of man. Work is not a result of the fall. Work predated the fall. What happened after the fall? What happened to work? It became harder. Became more tedious. And remember, what, we're going to see how God told Adam, you know, by the sweat of your brow now, you're, you're going to be farming the land. It's not going to be as easy as it once was. So work's going to be more tedious. But again, work was a part of the original creation. God's work and then man's work. So work is good. And in fact, work is part of what it means to be created in the image of God. We are to be creative in our own sense and we are to be productive. So again, it's not inherently bad. Now, when it says that God finished His work and rested, it, it does not mean that God is not active because the bible says that god neither slumbers nor sleeps and in fact jesus said in john chapter 5 that he's working and the father has been working until now so god finishing his work and resting means something different than our resting This same word, this this same Hebrew word for finish is used twice more in the Old Testament for important works of completion. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn over to Exodus chapter 40. And in Exodus chapter 40, we're gonna look over at verse 33. We're going to see the other occurrence in the Old Testament where the same word is used. Uh, Finished, the Hebrew word has the idea of just simply completing something. Okay? And what we're going to see in Exodus is the completion of the tabernacle. You'll remember from Exodus that for some 12 or 14 chapters in the book of Exodus, God has been giving instructions about the tabernacle and its contents and exactly how it's going to be made and who's going to make it. And in chapter 40, verse 33, we read, "...and he, that is Moses, erected the court all around the tabernacle and the altar and hung up the veil." Uh, for the gateway of the court, thus Moses completed the work or finished the work. The same term is used there of Moses' completion of the tabernacle. And then over in Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles uh, chapter 7. Second Chronicles chapter 7 is another occurrence where the same Hebrew word is used. It, it's in the context of the feast and the dedication of God's house which Solomon had built. And in verse 11 we read, thus Solomon completed or finished the, the house of the Lord and the king's house. He goes on to say there, all that Solomon had planned to do in the house of the Lord and in his own house, he successfully accomplished. So he brought it to completion. Now, folks, it ought to encourage us that God brought to completion that which he set out to do in creation. It's very encouraging. God began the creation. He completed it. Says a great deal about our confidence in redemption, too, right? God's done everything necessary for our redemption. Folks, we. We need this. We need this in a sinful world, in a fallen world. We need to be assured of the certainty and the completion of God's work of grace. And isn't it interesting that the terminology of finished is applied to that as well in the New Testament... For instance, in John chapter 19, in John 19 verse 30, John records for us the words of the Lord Jesus. It says, when Jesus therefore had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Now folks, those words are packed with significance. Indicating that Christ has brought to completion everything that was necessary for the work of redemption. That is to to buy us back and open the way for us into fellowship with God. He has brought that work of redemption to a close. It is done. That word was sometimes used of bills that were paid in full. It's been marked off and no more will it be charged to our account. He has finished that work, that work of redemption. And I want you to note that specifically with regard to the new creation, the same terminology is used in the book of Revelation. Turn to Revelation chapter 21, Revelation chapter 21. In the context of the discussion of the new heaven and the new earth, beginning there in verse 1, John says, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Now, notice again that we are immediately in the language of the original creation. What did God originally create? The heavens and the earth. Now in Revelation 21, in which in which we get constant echoes of Genesis especially the first chapters of Genesis listen to John. John says I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth passed away and there was no longer any sea and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God made ready as a bride adorned for her husband and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying behold the tabernacle of God is among men and he shall dwell among And they shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them. And he he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall no longer be any death. There shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. And he said to me, It is done. It will be completed. It's finished in the mind and the heart of God. Why? He says I'm the Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and the end. He goes on to say, I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of water of life without cost. And so in this passage we see the finishing of the old creation and the establishment of the new creation by the Lord Jesus Christ with the same type of language being used that we find in Genesis. Again, what's the point? What God starts, God finishes. And he's victorious in it. Amen. We can... You what? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. We can have complete confidence. Complete confidence in God. And you know what? That ought to also give us confidence when he promises that he will never leave us nor forsake us. And in Philippians 1.6, what does Paul say? Being confident of this very thing, that he who hath begun a good work in you will complete it. Over and over in God's word, you can see God bringing to completion things that he sets out to do. So again, here in Genesis chapter 2 in verse 1, we see the work of creation being complete. But again, that doesn't mean that he ceases to work. He ceases to work from the work of creation, the original creation that will never be done again, never to be repeated. It's done, that original foundation uh, being laid, that is work that will never be relayed, it will never be redone. Uh, but again, he'll make it new, new heavens and a new earth. He also continues his work of providence, preserving and governing that which he has made. He's not the God of the deist, the clockmaker God who makes the universe, winds it up, sets it up on a shelf, gets it started and then walks away from it. That's not what the Bible describes at all. John Calvin said, Inasmuch as God sustains the world by His power, governs it by His providence, cherishes and even propagates all creatures, He is constantly at work. So God's Sabbath rest is not a rest involving pure inactivity. He's not immobilized in his Sabbath rest. It is a rest from his creative works of the heavens and the earth. Well, secondly, I want you to see here that God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. It says, and on the seventh day God finished His work that He had done and He rested on the seventh day from all His work that He had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all His work that He had done in creation. The Sabbath day is the first thing recorded in Scripture that is consecrated as being holy holy. In the Ten Commandments, Israel was told to observe the Sabbath day and keep it holy. They were to keep the Sabbath based on the pattern of what God had done in His work, that He had worked six days and rested the seventh. In fact, one of the things that was to mark them off as being God's people is that they were to keep the Sabbath. And they would be unlike the pagan nations around them in that regard. The people of God in the Old Testament were to observe the cycle of working six days, resting the seventh, in order that they might celebrate God's creative work. Now in their rest, what would they be doing? For one thing, they would be recognizing and celebrating that while work is important and while work has been ordained by God, work is not the sum total of life. There's more to life than work. And so they were to pause from their work so that they might worship God, that they might worship together as God's people in the community of faith so that they might pray to God and recognize that all good gifts come from Him. They were not to think that what they had was a result of their own doings. Now, in Deuteronomy chapter 5, God also said that the Sabbath was a day not only to remember God's creative order, but it was a day for them to remember their redemption. Not only creation, but redemption. Because there they were in the land of Egypt, in the land of slavery, in the land of bondage, and they had heavy oppressors over them and they were not always able to recognize this cycle of work and rest that God had established. Because they were under the rule of, of a foreign power and so they were driven hard for 400 years. And so the Sabbath day was a day now for them to celebrate. God's redemption of them out of the land of slavery. And so for Israel, the Sabbath day again was a day that they would celebrate both creation and redemption. Creation and redemption. It was to give them the opportunity to pray, to worship, to reflect on God's provision for the week that had just passed. And to help them prepare for the week that was about to come, folks, even their animals and their servants and and the land itself was to be given time to rest. Do you remember in the the seventy year exile? One of the reasons God sent them into exile. Why was it make up the to make? to to give the land rest, to make up for all of the Sabbaths that they had not given the land. And so God was reclaiming the Sabbath even for the land. Now folks remember, once they came back from exile during the time between the, the two Testaments, what group came into being? Other than the Pharisees. Yes, ma'am. The Pharisees. And the Pharisees, along with the scribes and the teachers of the law, began writing their commentaries on the Scripture and their traditions. And they began elevating some of those to a place even above the Scripture itself. Remember how Jesus said in Mark chapter 7 that you set aside the word of God for your traditions. One of the areas where they added significantly to what God had said in his law was in regard to the Sabbath, they became oppressive. They, they came up with maximum distances that you could walk. Oh, they, they'd get around that. You know, they, they'd journey to somebody's home here and rest a little while. Then journey on to the, another one and journey on to another one. and journey. So they, they had their nice little ways they'd get around those Sabbath laws. But, but they had determined just certain distances... Uh, you couldn't lift anything heavier than a dried fig. They, they had just really become oppressive. On one occasion, remember, when Jesus and his disciples in Mark chapter 2 were walking through a field and they were picking grain and eating it, what the Pharisees have to say about that? Violated the Sabbath. Violated the Sabbath. You remember what Jesus said to him? What was his response? He pointed out he was Lord of the Sabbath. And what did he say about the Sabbath? Sabbath was made for man. Not man for the Sabbath. Sabbath. They put strict observance of Sabbath laws even above human welfare and the welfare of everything else. I've told you the story before. You're out in the field working. The Sabbath is about to begin at 6 p.m. Friday evening. You roll in at 5 fifty seven on your donkey Porsche, <laughs> and you have that animal loaded down that's your that's your pack pack animal and you don't have time to take the straps loose on the pack to unload the pack, take the straps loose. And, and and get the pack off of the pack mule. It's not time. Because you'll be working on the Sabbath when the Sabbath begins. But yet if you leave the pack on the pack mule. Then you're going to be sinning by making the animal work on the Sabbath. Because it's going to be bearing a burden on the Sabbath. So what do you do? Ask the son to stand still. <laughs> Ask the sun to stand still? No. Uh, what they came up with is that uh, the only obligation you had in that case was to um, go over to the animal and anywhere there was a fastener on the pack beside the animal, underneath the animal, crawl up underneath the animal, loosen all the fasteners so the straps would hang loose. You do that very quickly before the Sabbath began. And then hopefully in the course of that evening, the animal just in its moving around, that pack with its load is going to fall off. But even if it doesn't, You have freed yourself of all responsibility. That's how absurd they had become with it all. And as Jesus pointed out to them in the Gospels, they missed the whole point. They missed the entire intent of the Sabbath. It had become to them a bondage of its own instead of a point of celebration. Now, before we go any further, let's pause a minute. Let's let's take stock of what the Sabbath means for the church today. Now, we don't worship on the Sabbath because of what? The resurrection. First day of the week. Now, the principle behind the Sabbath, the principle... Do we need to observe it? Yes, in the sense that, that our week is patterned after God's week. Working six days, resting the seventh. Sabbath observance is not a part of the, of the new covenant. But yet we recognize the created order of things. And we're not to drive ourselves endlessly with our work So that we don't take a day to worship and rest. God has never changed the command that six days we're to labor. And one day is to be set aside to refuel and to rest and to worship. Folks. To fail to take a day to recognize God, to pause and worship, is is to fail to recognize God. It's, It's to fail to recognize that we're not machines. Now, I realize in our society today, not everybody can take the same day. But believers ought to be taking a day. To rest, to reflect on what God's done leading up to that. Reflect on the, on the week to come. To recognize God's intent in giving the Sabbath. A recognition that it all comes from Him. Now you know like the Pharisees we all have our own ideas of what a Sabbath is to be, right? Right? Everybody's got their checklist, right? And generally with with generations, those checklists kind of change too, right? Um, Just about everybody here other than George Tucker won't won't remember her. One of the the neatest ladies, one of the godliest ladies uh, I've ever known in our church was uh, Helen Fink. Wouldn't you agree with that, George? Godly lady. One Sunday night, we weren't having church, and David Fink had been talking to me about going over to his parents' house and fishing in their farm pond. He said, Scott, are you kidding me? I said, what? He said, my mama would kill us. (laughs) He said, Helen... Helen better not catch you drowning a worm in her pond uh, on on Sunday. He said, there's a lot we can do, but you better not go fishing in my mama's pond. (laughs) We all have our ideas. Now, recognizing the principle of the Sabbath does not mean that a man, for instance... Can't go out in his driveway with his boys and shoot basketball. Again, man's not made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath is made for man. The principle is that which refreshes us, relaxes us. I I believe that it does not violate the principle of the Sabbath. But folks, if your day of rest leaves you more exhausted at the end of that day than at the beginning. Then you violated it, haven't you? If your day of rest, first of all, if it doesn't involve God. If it doesn't involve God, you violated its intent. And if it doesn't leave you rested and refreshed in any way, it violates the principle of the Sabbath. Now, by the way, I've got to confess to you a division in the pastor's household over this. Connie's saying, oh my, oh my goodness, I can read her lips. I, I confess to you a division over this matter in the pastor's household uh, Connie thinks in the Baptist church or in many churches nowadays There's a sense in which we violate the principle of the Sabbath She thinks it ought to be a day of worship Then we go home and, and you know, it ought to be a time families can get together if you have aging parents, you know, check on them, whatever. Connect with your children. You're resting, getting ready for the week to come. But what are we so often doing? Especially if you're a teacher or a leader in the church. You're getting ready to come back that night, right? Getting ready to come back that night. And if you have any teaching position, leadership position in the church, you get to the end of the Lord's day. And you're exhausted because you've been going wide open since about 7 o'clock that morning. She's convinced we get it wrong. I'm like, Connie, when would we do the discipleship, you know, the Great Commission, discipling and all that? Um, When would we do that? You know, we've started doing that on Sunday nights. But anyway, she just says, churches, we, we pack so much in to the Lord's day that the Lord's people go home exhausted instead of refreshed so anyway I told on her she thinks you agree with Connie on that <laughs> you take a vote <laughs> she thinks it'll all be Sunday morning and after that again a day to rest to read to reflect spend time with family just Anyway, get ready for the week to come. So, division in the pastor's household over that. Friendly division. So, anyway, the principle is you take a day off from work. You include worship. You recognize God as the giver of life and of redemption. You rest. You recharge. And if you are an employer, you give your employees a day. Now, thirdly, I want you to see tonight, the Sabbath pointed to the redemptive rest in Christ that begins at the new birth and it's consummated in heaven. The Sabbath pointed to the redemptive rest in Christ that begins at the new birth and it's consummated in heaven. In Christ, We rest from our labors in the sense of not working for our salvation. We trust in His work, not our own. And what is it that Christ gives? Christ gives rest as only He can. Write down Matthew 11. Matthew 11 beginning in verse 28. What did Jesus say there? He said, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Here's people burdened down with sin. Burdened down with maybe trying to free themselves of their guilt and burden of sin. Can't do it. Jesus said, come to me and I'll give you rest. And then the rest that we have in Christ points forward to what? heavenly rest. Turn over to Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. And let's read Hebrews chapter 4 together. The writer of Hebrews says, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear "...lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them... ...because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest." He appoints a certain day. Today, saying through David, so long afterward, in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, underscore verse 9, so then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Aren't you glad of that? There is yet coming a future rest for the people of God. The heavenly promise. It's begun even now in Christ. For all those in Christ, that rest has begun. But the consummation of it is in heaven one day. Amen? That That's why I refer to the principle of the Sabbath. We don't recognize it legalistically because Paul said to the Colossians, he condemned those who were trying to preach Sabbath days and so forth. And, and that's the reason I say it's it's the principle of the Sabbath. That we're not machines. We don't go constantly. We have that time each of us in our lives, where we stop, we rest, we worship, we reflect, we retool for the week to come, and and. Uh, I, I, but I, y- you make a good point. We don't we don't legalistically keep a day, as the scripture says. All days are the Lord's day. There just needs to be time in your life. God's people need to take time to stop, to reflect, to to rest, to reflect, to worship. And if you're going constantly through the week and you're not doing that, you are breaking the principle, the principle behind the Sabbath.